Hey, good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. So excited to bring the word to you and celebrate in this Easter season. And how great is it that we had children up front? Because on Palm Sunday, we know that it was the children who got who Jesus was, right? Uh, the rest were kind of clueless, and they started praising him with open abandonment. You got to realize, up to now, Jesus had been like, hush, hush. Like he would heal a leper and say, don't tell anybody, right? Didn't work out too well, but um, shh. And it was the children praising Jesus, and he said, if these are silent, and he, I think he pointed over to the tombs and said, those rocks are going to cry out, the dead are going to raise, and they're going to praise me, uh, and so children led the way, and so this Palm Sunday uh, is a time where we, we recognize that the gospel writers focused more than half of the, if you look at the gospels as biographies of Jesus, about half of the gospels are focused on the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, and so um, it is right for us to focus there. Uh, and I want to draw our attention to not Jesus coming into Jerusalem, uh, kind of his final uh, appearance and message, uh, which ultimately drove him to the cross and motivated the mobs to want to kill him. I'm going to draw your attention to the first message of Jesus. And we're going to look at it in its original place in Isaiah 61. Uh, this was the message the first time after Jesus' baptism. Jesus didn't have any public ministry until he was both baptized by John and the Spirit of God came upon, lit upon his life as a dove. And then we find him going into <clears throat> his hometown synagogue. And imagine this, you know, Jesus had attended faithfully in that synagogue. It may not have been the most arresting place. It may not have been the most polished place, but Jesus' faithfulness, he always went. And this was the day he spoke. And imagine this, the first time you get up and you deliver a message is also the last time you deliver a message because the result of this message was, Luke 4 tells us, they wanted to kill him. Um, I know the first time I, I saw a, a movie of Jesus that was based on the Gospel of Luke, I was shocked that the plot to kill Jesus actually took root the very first time he gave a message. And yet this passage in Isaiah 61, the mood of it, if, if I was going to look at it and try to characterize the mood of, of Isaiah 61, I would say, joy! It's just incredible, restorative, renewing, glorious joy. But the part that made them want to kill Jesus really was that he said, this message cannot be separated from my person. And he asserted his person. We all know that, you know, if you, if you do some of the good things that Jesus did and you detach them from Jesus, you can get a government grant and you can get celebrated in all the papers. But if you insist on the centrality of the person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, it might well get you killed. And so we're going to look at this passage. This is the messianic inaugural address of Jesus. Uh, and as I read through, we're going to read the whole chapter just so you get the context. But we're going to focus on the part he quotes uh, in Luke 4. And Jesus, first of all, makes the message. There are three points to this sermon. There's always three points to my sermons almost. But it focuses on the person of Christ. That's going to be, we're going to see he is always pushing. He's the most meek and humble of people, but he's always pushing himself in utter meekness. No ego. He can do no other. Secondly, he focuses on the proclamation. 
of the saving message of the gospel. And then third, he brings out the transforming effect where his person and message are welcomed. Uh, so let me just pray for us again before I read the word. Father, we pray you would quiet the other voices that compete for our attention, even the restlessness of our own heart, to fix our hearts and eyes on the bread of life, on Jesus himself, on the ends that scripture was given us for, that we might feast and feed upon you as you were given to us in our Messiah Jesus. On this Palm Sunday, speak to us, God, and may the spirit that rests on Jesus perfectly, may it come to rest and abide on us. Open and break open your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So these are the words. Jesus would have unrolled the scroll, or the scroll would have probably been unrolled for him, and this, these were the words that Jesus spoke. Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus actually omitted this part in Luke. We'll look at this later. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priest of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up from all the nations. Jesus read those words, and you know what the first thing he said was after that? He said, today, these words are fulfilled in your midst. 
That would have been utterly astounding, arrogant if any other human being had ever done that. He was saying, all of this has come true now in a way it's never come true before, in a way that it's come in completeness because I am here. <laughs> and, and he was asserting from all of this message, what he, what he is saying is that he is the embodiment of all of this. He is the trigger. He is the pivot to make all of this happen. And he asserts it in a few ways. First of all, he's, he's, he's so focused on himself. If you see in the first one, he says, the sovereign Lord, uh, uh, the sovereign Lord, he said, who, who he's identified here with, has given his spirit to him. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on him. Now, Jesus is already fully God. <laughs> he is always God. He never stopped being God. Even when he's on the cross dying in the humble place, he is God. Uh, he is continually God, and yet he's communing with God perfectly uh, in the confines of the Trinity that was never really broken in his earthly life. Uh, but he now the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon him, but then he says again, and he's anointed him. The word Messiah really means the anointed one, that he is, he is pushing his, his person. And what he's saying is that, he's saying, I am not merely a prophet like Isaiah was a prophet of God, a mouthpiece of God, but he's saying, um, I am not merely a prophet pointing the way to God. I am the God to whom the prophets point. Jesus is not like a prophet come with words to help you find God. He is God come to find you. And he's saying, I, these words are fulfilled. I am he and I am the one who is filled with the oil of gladness more than any other companion. I, I am the full manifestation of God. And this explains the uniqueness of the life of Jesus and why he is absolutely incomparable to all other lives. You can't explain the person of Jesus apart from understanding he is God walking this earth. He is fully God and when he, uh, he has always been God, but what's new in when he took to himself a, a human personality was that he embraced our humanity and so he can be the example of what a human life in all of its stages looks like when it is fully yielded to God. And when there is no room for anything that is a contradiction to the holy, holy, holy spirit of God. Jesus is the perfect spirit-filled human life even as he is fully God. And you know what the perfect spirit-filled life will always look like? It will look like love. It will look like love poured out. It will look like selfless giving. It will look like uh, the most beautiful, striking thing that you have ever seen. And so this is the source that makes Jesus the greatest person in history because he is more than a person. He is fully God and he is the perfect spirit-filled human being. People marvel at this, but Jesus is the greatest person. There is no one like him. Jesus, Jesus never had any servants, yet they called him master. Jesus had no degrees and yet he is the greatest teacher. Uh, Jesus never had any medicines or medical degrees and yet he is the great physician and healer. Jesus had no armies, and yet the kings and governors feared him. Uh, he won no military battles or tried, and yet he conquered the world. Uh, he committed no crime, yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, and yet he lives today uh, because you cannot snuff out the life that God gave and that God anointed in Jesus. 
the compelling magnetism of Jesus. It's, it's the reason I'm a Christian. It's the reason Jesus, people say, why do you believe in God? Ultimately, there are so many reasons, the heavens declaring the glory, there are so many reasons I could go into, but I can tell you the ultimate reason that I am a believer in God with a specific name and address is the person of Jesus. I highly recommend to you Jesus. There is no one like him. And so when the apostles, after his resurrection, described the life that Jesus lived in Acts 10, 38, it says, Peter says this, he says, you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That's why he was anointed. The true power, the true lasting power of any ministry is not based on hollow hype. It's not based on our clever entrepreneurial programs. It's not based on production and performance or somehow us tapping in and whomping up some kind of energy but the true lasting value of any ministry, everything else will be chaff, is Jesus himself. And he asserts himself here as the driving force. And he is the driving force because he is perfectly and purely God. And in his spirit, there was no room for anything else except the holy, holy, holy spirit of God. All the rest of us there is an infinite distance from him to us, but here's, here's the reality. Ministry has to take place in lives that are fully yielded and constantly making revisions as he directs us to make revisions to our lives, our thoughts, and our deeds. If we are to be the force that Jesus wants us to be, because this is the ministry blueprint for us too, then we have got to receive his life and receive his spirit and be in step with it. One of the ways that Jesus shows his uniqueness is that though he had all power, his power was used to become vulnerable and weak to serve others. Power gets distorted and misused when it becomes about us. But in, in Jesus' life, this, this power becomes vulnerable to serve. Uh, one I the most relevant books to our age, I think, and one that I'm going to recommend to all in ministry leadership is a book by Diane Langberg about power relationships and about power becoming um, something that is in the service of God. Uh, in this book by Diane Langberg, you can put the title up if you'd like. Um, there are many arresting passages. And there's one quote in this book that just arrested uh, my attention. And she writes this, she says, the power of a person is found in likeness to Jesus Christ. It is not found in brilliance, gifting, knowledge, position, verbal power, reputation, or fame. It's not found there. It is found when a mere person, such as yourself, flings open the corridors and closets of their life so that they are full of the light and love of God. That person full of living water will alter the landscape in which they walk. That person will fill the earth with God's glory. 
that is the secret of Jesus' life, that he fully, perfectly did that as God in the flesh walking this earth. It is the power and the privilege and the glory of our lives imperfectly yielded to Jesus. Oh, this morning, this is, if our hearts can be healed and our captivity set free, uh, this, is, this is the purpose of it. And, and I point out the purity and the power of Jesus' life because ministry and church, I think, is going through a season of reckoning in our country especially and in the world. Where God is basically saying, he's saying, I love my name too much to let my church misrepresent who I am. And so I'm going to sift and expose the hollowness, the frauds, the phonies, the fake, the hype, the corruption, so that it can be displaced. And yeah, it looks like a wrecking ball has been placed over so many ministries and places. If, if you follow ministries and your heart has not been broken by some scandal, I would be surprised. If you are deep in Christian ministry and leadership and your heart has not sometimes just wanted to give up and say, Lord, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not sure I believe, Lord, you know, in your church. If you're acquainted with your own heart and, and you've never, you, and here's the test, if you're acquainted with your own heart and you've never just gotten tired of yourself, just sometimes I just get so tired of myself and, and wanted just to resign it all to Jesus that, that and, and here's the problem, and if, and if you're in ministry and institution, sometimes the, the gears of ministry and institution just still beg to be ground and, 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 and oiled and maintained so that they continue to go, and yet we've lost the storyline. We've lost the power. There's, we're just putting out programs, and we're not even ministering to brokenhearted people like Jesus ministered to brokenhearted people. We're just recruiting brokenhearted people to join us in getting fatigued intending to all the machinery of ministry. I don't know whether you relate to that. I resigned from that. I never want to go back to that. That's such a picture. And it, it reminds me of a story that Diane Langberg tells in this book about power relationships. And she describes a visit she made to a place that virtually every president or first lady or king of virtually every country has made a pilgrimage to. And it's the place of the slave forts of Ghana in West Africa. You can put up that picture of these slave forts. Sadly, they accompanied um, vast amounts of the geography of Ghana. And she said they took her into the uh, dungeon room where they would have as many as, as 200 who had been kidnapped, who were awaiting being sent out what they call the door of no return. And, and she said that your heart was just stricken by the suffering. Um, so many quotes of famous people who've been there who just said that they, they just, it was like visiting a Holocaust museum. There were 20 million slaves, they think, who passed through those kind of forts and were shuttled off never to see their motherland again. And, and some of them were, were picked out for particular abuse 
by the captain of the fort and his crew, and they were even sometimes young ladies abused and degraded in the worst of ways. I won't even, I can't even describe it without triggering us. Even the clergy participated. And she said as she was awash in just grief over this, they said to her, they said, um, do you know what was happening on the top floor? Do you know what is right above this slave fort? She said, no, I don't know. She said it was the chapel. It was the place of worship. And they would have their sermons and their praises and their prayers and they knew what was going on underneath. They could not deny it because they sent uh, people down to tell the slaves to be quiet. The unthinkable horror of the top story pretending to be a place of worship and yet all this degradation going on down. And she said, the, the guide said, heaven above, but hell beneath. She said, she said this. She said, it wasn't heaven above. Because that's not what heaven does. Heaven doesn't cover up the darkness. Heaven doesn't distance itself from the darkness and the suffering. We know what heaven does because it's what Jesus did. Jesus would have plunged himself into that darkness. Jesus would have plunged himself into that dungeon. And before we exempt ourselves and get all self-righteous and say, well, I would have, you know, I would have. You know, but let me just say, the dungeon really is in our own hearts. And, and Jesus has to liberate us from that dungeon, the dungeon of our own sin and our own making, so that we can be part of the liberating force. And this is the grace of what Jesus comes to do. He comes um, to free the captives, to heal the brokenhearted, uh, and, and to bring a proclamation that can really deliver us. And this is the second thing I, I want to move us to. I'm into the second point now, that Jesus, after focusing on his person, he focuses on his proclamation. This is in, in verse 1 and, and verse 3, 1 through 3, where he says that he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came as a preacher. He was not just a miracle worker. Yes, he performed miracles because he loved people and wanted to lift them out of suffering. He proclaimed miracles because he wanted to show people that his message was not just empty words, but his message of forgiveness and restoration and renewal was actually going to restore us. Do you know the miracles were not so much odd things that God did to disrupt the narrative, but the miracles are really God saying, I want to renew everything the way it's supposed to be. The miracles were simply saying, this is the way it's supposed to be. There's not supposed to be people born without eyes and, and born without the ability to walk and people starving in our world. Jesus said, I'm going to restore. This is a miracle of restoration. But they were illustrations to the proclamation that brought life. And he says, I'm bringing you proclamation of good news. Here's a test for whether you've understood the message of Jesus. It is good news, not good advice. You know how it is when there's a slow news day and you're watching the local news channel? If nothing big happened in the area, in Philadelphia or Baltimore or DC or some center of the world, then they usually have news stories that are advice. You know, how to lower your cholesterol or 
whether you should exercise first and have your meal later or eat your calories early and then exercise. You know, it's all advice, right? And, and when that happens, you might as well, you know, unless you're waiting for the sports report, you might as well turn the TV off and go to bed because <laughs> nothing in the world happened when they're talking about advice. Um, Jesus' message was not advice. Uh, advice is counsel about something that you and I are supposed to do that hasn't happened yet. So you can do something about it. But news is always a report about something that has happened and you can't do anything about it, but you have to adjust your lives to the event that's been done and respond to it. Good news proclaimed often had heralds. In fact, later in scripture it describes a preacher as a herald of good news. And heralds would come with trumpets and they would sound a report about something that had happened. So if, if you were in a battle, I mean, our hearts are all just stricken with the war in Ukraine from a hostile, unrighteous, invading army. And what the people of Ukraine need is, is not advice. They don't, they don't really want military strategists. Well, let's say they, they need it right now, but what they would long for was if somebody could bring them good news. And you see, what religion does to us is religion sends us military strategists in the war for our lives against all the occupying threats and tries to give us advice about how to organize whatever meager resources we have so that we can survive the day and make some kind of progress, right? That's not good news, it's, it's advice. Most of you came into this building today and you weren't just hungering for the pastor to lay some more advice on you so that you can have greater expectation of your own performance when you basically are not even able to live up to your own, the own signals that you get from your own conscience. You weren't just hungering to say, well, I hope he'll have some new commands and new things to just flatten me to the floor with my own inability and, my, and, and to increase my disappointment with myself. Most of us don't long to go home to have our spouse or loved one say to us, honey, I have some more expectations to lay upon you today. <laughs> That's not how we enter the door. And here is what's so, gl so glorious about the gospel. The gospel is not God sending advice and counsel to us for what we need to do that hasn't been affected yet. But the gospel is always purely an announcement of what has been done. And the announcement is this, that our enemy has been defeated, sin and death. The core of our problem that breaks our bru and bruises our heart and that takes us into captivity to our sin. You know what it says, the captives have to be set free because we are, and not just people in Alcoholics Anonymous or Celebrate Recovery, but every single one of you and me are absolutely helpless against the force and incursion of sin. Some of us are addicted to respectable sins, like workaholism, which will get you a raise and a promotion. And others are addicted to sins that disrupt your ability to work, and so you kind of, you bear the brunt of that, but they're really the same in God's eyes. It's being our own lords, being our own masters. All that, what we need is an announcement that the core of that sin has been defeated and that there is victory. 
Imagine how welcome it would be to the Ukrainians if they heard somebody say, the Russians have surrendered, they've disarmed, they've been defeated, they're retreating from the country. All is, all is well. Nothing left for you to do. That's so different than sending military strategists and every other religion, every other philosophy, even if you're an atheist this morning, your conscience is somehow sending signals, giving you advice. Every religion is saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, here are the laws, here are the regulations, except for the gospel. And the gospel says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. He's done it all. And Jesus, when he, when he fixes this as the announcement of good news, he describes it as good news to the poor. He's speaking of the economically poor, and he's quoting really from uh, Deuteronomy, and he's quoting from Leviticus about the year of Jubilee. Because he says, the year of the Lord's favor for the poor. And here's what was enshrined in Israel's legislation. That we had the Sabbath day, six days you shall work, then you get one day off. That was true of everybody. It was very progressive. Even the poor got a day off. Most people live hand to mouth, got to work every day. Most people in the world, they have to work to eat. We're so privileged. And so one day off. Everybody. But then... Every six years, seventh year, off. Year of Jubilee, seven sevens, the 49th year, God says, you're not going to have to work, and I will take care of you, and the land will produce its, its fruit for you. But not only that, on the year of Jubilee, and this is amazing legislation, but it meant that they had to trust God while they were in the land. Um, God said, I'm going to forgive all the debts, so that if your family or your um, clan got behind the eight ball and you had to pay off and work um, you were going to be have get a free start you were going to have restored to you all the areas that had been taken to you either by forces of suffering and sickness that were out of your control or even if you had just totally mismanaged and screwed it all up you were going to get a fresh start isn't that amazing some of you nodding wouldn't it be amazing <laughs> So, uh, as far as we know, uh, they might not have ever actually obeyed God and did it. <laughs> but here's the way it was set up. And do you know that that glorious year of Jubilee, you know what happened right before the day of Jubilee? And the year of Jubilee, the day that announced it? Um, there was a trumpet blast. But right before the trumpet blast, do you know what happened? It was the offerings of atonement. It was the day of atonement. Because... The blessings of jubilee, of having your debts forgiven, getting a new start in life, having restored to you everything that you have screwed up and messed up and disfigured can only be a reality if it flows out of the atonement where God offered himself the innocent for the guilty, the unblemished for the blemished, the, the undefiled for all of the ways that we pollute ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? And, and, and Jesus is, is here saying, the gospel is the year of jubilee, but there is no benefit that the gospel brings us that is unconnected or does not pass through the crucified offering of Jesus Christ. There is no blessing. There is no reconciliation. There is no life of the Spirit of God. He can't pour himself on us until we've been purified, until we pass through 
the proclamation of Jesus. I just love this, this message, how, how perfect it is. And so Jesus is saying, I'm gonna break the captives out of their sin, but the only way I can do it is I've gotta become captive. I'm gonna lead them out of darkness, but I've gotta let myself be led into darkness, the light of the world led into darkness. I'm gonna heal all the broken hearts, all those who, who in the original Hebrew, the, the bruising, you know, if you've ever been badly bruised, you can just be paralyzed by being bruised. You don't even have to have a broken bone. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to heal all the bruised hearts. A description of all the ways that our hearts are broken. But Jesus is saying, but I'm going to have to be bruised. And so he's, he's pointing to all of those, all those things, but he says it's going to happen through the news that I am going to pay for in my own body. There's a story of a Nazi prisoner of war camp, World War II. And it's told by a chaplain who was taken into the prisoner of war camp but was given some privileges. His name was Murdo MacDonald. He was from Ireland. And he said that they had the little group of chaplains that were in the prisoner of war group, they were able to rig up somehow through wires and others a little radio. And they got a report in advance that the Allies had won the war. Uh, but that news was not being announced to the large prisoner of war camp. And so uh, when the chaplains got the news, they went and they were talking in front of the, the German-speaking Nazi guards. And they, they were afraid to speak in English, but they could speak Gaelic. And so they told... Some of the prisoners of war, as they said, the allies have won. The Nazis have been defeated. We're going to be freed. And they said when they went back to the camp, uh, to the guards' puzzlement, there was a huge, hooray! And the guards were like, what's going on? These are the prisoners of war. And they were like, hooray! And then they, they kind of suppressed it because they didn't know what the Nazi guards might do to them while they were still under their power, right? But it's said that from the point at which they heard the news that the victory had been won. They no longer complained about the incessant biting of the fleas. They no longer complained about how bad the food was. It said that before they actually were literally freed and the gates of the prisoner war camp were opened, it says that they were actually able to smile at the guards. To all of a sudden be filled with a joy even before they received all of the benefits because they believed the news that had come. And I want to ask you this morning, have you received the good news of the proclamation of Jesus that through his sacrifice once for all, he has set right everything that was against us. He has forgiven and liquidated our debts. He's restoring everything that we have lost, whether by our own deserts or through living in a fallen world. It doesn't matter. His cross bears it all. He set us free and the day is coming and we don't have to wait until what eventually they experience. The guards, they, they actually they unlocked the gates and just disappeared, ran for their lives. Is something robbing you of your joy? Is there a guard who really has no reality behind them that is somehow overshadowing the message of Jesus because they said, we were liberated, and here's what's true for all of us. We must be liberated by the news before we're liberated by the guards. 
Have you been liberated by that news? And you know how the news comes. Do you know how I, I said when Jesus read this scripture, in, and he may have just read everything in the scripture, but Luke omits the line of the, I've come to announce the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if he were a modern preacher, it would be suspect. I'm, I believe that what's wrong with most preaching in Chester County and in America is not so much what is said, but what refuses to be said. Can't find many places that speak of the fact that there's a day of reckoning, there's a day of vengeance, there's a day of holy justice. There is a day when the scales will be brought out and every life will come under the holy scrutiny of God. There is a judgment day coming. And God cannot be God and he cannot be holy by somehow being lenient with unrighteousness. To be lenient with unrighteousness is to give reign to the devil to continue his misery forever. To be lenient with unrighteousness is to attack the victims of sin. God will not be lenient. He cannot be lenient. But there is one place where God was not lenient, where wrath was not brought to us, but wrath was born for us. And this is why I believe Jesus did not say, I've come to announce the day of vengeance of our God because Jesus was coming. And John says it very clearly. He says, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. But like the, the malefactors of the cross said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. They spoke a true word. <laughs> he could not save others unless he relinquished himself. And that's what he did. <laughs> He relinquished himself so that he could bear the holy wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. Such was his love and delight. He delighted to do it. For the joy set before him, he endured it. Isaiah 53 says the father even was, was pleased to crush him so that he is, by his knowledge he might justify many. And it's in, in, in that message, and you cannot detach the benefits of healed, broken hearts, of people set free from all of the things that reign over us and bring us down. You cannot detach the benefits from the benefactor. This is another thing that's wrong in so much of Christian book writing and publishing. It's all about the benefits. And all of a sudden, God becomes a supportive character in the narrative, and we become the main character. And he exists to bring us a kind of prosperity that is detached from him. Don't buy that lie. <laughs> because the best thing in this life and the best thing in heaven itself is we will be unleashed, and God will be in his rightful place, and we can glory in that. <laughs> And so all of these benefits come because Jesus bore the vengeance of God on the cross, none detached. And here I come back. This is what the effects of his, the effects of his ministry look like. Every time the movement of Jesus is moving Surrender to him as Lord. This is what happens. It's focused on his person. 
It's proclaiming in a, in a central way the good news proclamation of the gospel. And then you just cannot keep away the throngs of people who come with every manner of brokenheartedness. One commentator said this, the phrase healing the brokenhearted means that every kind of condition of brokenness is brought and healed. You see that image of the slave forts of Guyana? The chapel ultimately is not a place. The chapel is a person. The chapel, the ultimate chapel is the person of Jesus. And it's, it's a head with a body. He is the head. And in the physical realm, we know that a, a body that doesn't follow its head is, is a sick body. And, and Jesus has come to join himself to the likes of us. And apart from the washing and redemption and surrender to him, we're, we're as dark as that dungeon, but he brings us into light. And he, and, he, and he frees us out of the dungeon of our own selves, not just as an end to ourselves, but he frees us out of that dungeon that we will go find others in the dungeon and set them free, others who are broken, others who are captive, and we will bring them into the light of God. And this is what he says, to give them the oil of joy for mourning. Basically, it, it, in the Hebrew, it really is an exchange. Give me your mourning, I'll give you the oil of joy. He says, to take the, the spirit of despair and to put on them the garment of praise. Jesus says, give me your your spirit of despair. And I'm going to put over you the garment of praise. He says, I'll give you the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of despair. And he says, and I'll give you beauty for ashes. Sin turns our lives to ashes. Jesus says, give me your ashes. <laughs> he says, even I, I will go to the cross and my face will be marred more than the face of any human being that has ever lived because I'm going to come under the weight of sin. And he says, but I am going to give you the beauty, beauty that I possess, beauty that God possesses. It's going to flow into your life as you give me the ashes of your life so that you might become a planting of the Lord, an oak of righteousness to display his splendor. That's the ministry mandate of Jesus. And when he came on this first time and they tried to kill him, you can read it, they tried to throw him off the cliff, uh, he was supernaturally delivered. But on Palm Sunday, as he rides into the city, he's going to surrender himself. He's going to unilaterally disarm. He's going to let them do all manner of evil to him because unknowing, that is going to unleash, that is going to unleash all of these benefits to all who will repent and receive them by faith. And friends, this is the ministry. This is the ministry where Christ is Lord of his church, where his anointing is flowing in his church, where his person is central, where his proclamation is prized, and, and where that's unleashed. This is the ministry that goes forth. Have you received it? Have you received the good news? Have you brought your brokenness to Christ? And if you let him minister to you until you cannot keep it to yourself and you're marshaled and sent forth to gather others, let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for these words. Oh, we don't deserve that you would come with such glowing, glorious words for us. Lord, penetrate. Penetrate our hearts. Break our chains 
Shine your light upon us so, Lord, we might live out this glorious message. Lord, we pray that you might gather us um, even this week, both in our closets, our cars, our places we can commune to you, and we would just lay down before you our chains, our bruises, our ashes, and that we would find you restoring, renewing, remaking. And that we would fling open wide the gates of our heart and say, Lord, we just want your light to come into us so that it might come through us. For your splendor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us? Your banner, your banner 
this week, and uh, I just want to especially encourage you toward the Monday Thursday service. Monday means mandate, and it is the very night on Holy Week where Jesus gave his followers the mandate, and he said, by this all people will know you are my disciples, that you love one another, and it was out of that that he displayed his love by instituting the Lord's Supper. So it was like the night, it was the Passover night. He changes what is said, he changes what is served. Oh, I'm gonna to start to preach the sermon. I'm gonna preach on Monday, Thursday. I'm so excited about it. Um, but it is going to take place at a hallowed place. This is, this is a hallowed place because of what God has done, but you can't really understand the hallowed things God has done here without being part or seeing NLPC place where God has moved. And I think it's, it's such a fitting setting for this worship service. And I just encourage you, if you can pull away the times and hush the other demands and be part of this, I think you'll find it very meaningful to the rest of your week uh, and a place where God will, I pray, deepen all of our sense of awe at the supper Jesus gave us and of the practical implication for our lives. So just encourage you toward uh, NLPC. There may be a few who've never been there, and this is your opportunity, because I think the, the renewal God is going to do, I just felt it when I first saw that place. I first saw this building, I was like, wow. Then I saw that building, I said, oh, I get it. Wow, wow. What God has done. And if you haven't experienced that, come this Thursday, because I think some of the future narrative of renewal and power is going to not bypass that place, but it's going to go right through there, through here, and out to Chester County, so this Thursday. But now lift up your hearts directly to God. And again, this is the part where we ask God to so 
seal into our hearts what we experienced here, that we carry him out into the world as we minister before him. And so lift up your hearts and now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant offered up Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Your banner, your banner over us is love, unfailing love. Your banner, your banner over us is love, unfailing love. Your Great.